I think the TradFi mind really understands Ethereum because like Bitcoin, it's like, okay, what makes Bitcoin special? All right, there's there's 21 million coins that there can't be any more than that. So like it's limited supply, totally. Okay, I get it, store value. Then they go to like Ethereum and they're like, wait a second, you're telling me that there's yield on this thing and I can have smart contracts? That's pretty cool. And so I do think that, that ETH as an asset class is gonna be super appealing uh, as people take the time to really understand it a little bit. It's, it's a matter of, uh, of when, not if. Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is Ryan Sean Adams, and I'm here to help you become more bankless. Yep, just me today. Solo episode. David's at a conference. The guest today is Chris Perkins. And my, my, this is definitely frontier of finance material. So Chris has a fascinating background, as I've come to learn. Uh, He was a Marine. He was shot at in Iraq. He was at Lehman Brothers when all of that came crashing down in 2008. Then he was at Citigroup trying to pick up the pieces of the financial crisis. That's when he first ran across Gary Gensler. Now he's in crypto. Um, All of this, as you might imagine, gives Chris Perkins a very unique perspective on crypto, on national defense, on traditional finance. So we talk about all of that in the episode, but that's not even the main event. The main event is Ether the Asset and a new reference rate, an interest benchmark, if you will. He's building on top of it. So this probably sounds in the weeds to a lot of people, but it's actually key to unlocking trillions in new financial products and capital. You might call this the LIBOR for ETH. Truth be told, I didn't fully understand what LIBOR was or why it was so useful in traditional finance, but we get that education today. I want to give you some context on why this is important in the scope of Bankless and crypto and crypto investing. So on Bankless, we've described Ether the asset as the internet bond. That's a, a narrative that we've used, a, a way of understanding it, an analogy, uh, since probably 2020, um, before proof of stake on Ethereum even existed, before Ether even had yield, we called it the internet bond, because it's simply the best way of describing Ether the asset and its future. Um, Ether is money, staked Ether is the internet bond. So what do we mean by this? Ether is like the bond of a sovereign country. It's kind of like a a T-bill. That's a comparison we've made in the past. When you stake dollars into a government bond, like a treasury, like a T-bill, you get yield that's denominated in the dollar. And when you stake Ether into a validator, you start staking your ETH, you get yield denominated, not in dollars, but in Ether. And where does this yield come from? Well, you know, you've listened to previous Bankless episodes. It comes from revenue produced by the Ethereum protocol itself. In the world of nation states with sovereign bonds, you might call these revenues taxes because the revenue is proportional to the overall size of the economy. And that's true for Ethereum as well. The revenue produced by the Ethereum protocol and given out as a yield to stakers, to validators, is proportional to the overall size of the Ethereum economy. You have more goods, you have more services, more block space demand on Ethereum, you get more transaction fees, you get more revenue, you get higher yield for those staking. So what is the next step to establishing Ethereum as an internet bond? to making this narrative, to making this meme even more true than it is today. Well, according to our guest today, what we have to do is standardize on a global reference rate for ETH daily yield. So traditional finance has, has done this in the past using things like LIBOR, 
which we'll discuss in the episode. So we need to create a LIBOR for Ethereum, a reference rate on the yield on a daily basis that can be used both on-chain and off-chain. Has to be open, has to be public accessible. It can't be corrupted in the way that traditional finance reference rates were like LIBOR. And why is this all important? What's the, what's the summary here? Well, in TradFi, interest benchmarks like this, like formerly LIBOR and other reference rates, underpin hundreds of trillions of capital. Chris mentioned in the episode, $500 trillion in derivatives markets, all underpinned by these types of reference rates. They also set the risk-free rate. They determine the cost of, of capital. So this is a, a metric for investors everywhere. And they are also part of the reason the dollar is the global reserve currency. They're the reason Jerome Powell is the high priest of global finance and the world stops, all of TradFi stops to listen to what he has to say. So here's how this connects. For Ethereum to become an internet bond worth trillions of dollars, it will need a reference rate, something similar to the reference rate Caesar that Chris talks about today. This is how Ether the asset scales and becomes central to the functioning of the global economy, which of course, you know, we believe is its destiny. So hang on, fascinating episode ahead, essential learning for the bankless journey. Let's get right to our episode with Chris Perkins. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this possible, including our number one recommended exchange, the place to convert your fiat for ether that is Kraken. Go create an account. If you want a crypto trading experience backed by world-class security and award-winning support teams, then head over to Kraken, one of the longest standing and most secure crypto platforms in the world. Kraken is on a journey to build a more accessible, inclusive, and fair financial system, making it simple and secure for everyone everywhere to trade crypto. Kraken's intuitive trading tools are designed to grow with you, empowering you to make your first or your hundredth trade in just a few clicks. And there's an award-winning client support team available 24-7 to help you along Along the way, along with a whole range of educational guides, articles, and videos. With products and features like Kraken Pro and Kraken NFT Marketplace and a seamless app to bring it all together, it's really the perfect place to get your complete crypto experience. So check out the simple, secure, and powerful way for everyone to trade crypto, whether you're a complete beginner or a seasoned pro. Go to kraken.com slash bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. Uniswap is revolutionizing the DeFi space, not just by enabling swaps, but by empowering you to swap smarter with a comprehensive suite of products for faster, safer, and more informed swapping. Say goodbye to pop-up wallet extensions. The Uniswap extension is coming soon, and this extension is not a pop-up. It is a sidebar in your browser that persists no matter where you are on the web. This means you can swap, sign, or send, and receive crypto anytime, anywhere, without obstructing your browser window. But that's not all. The Uniswap web app now features limit orders, so you can buy and sell any token at your price on your terms without having to watch the market. And the best part? Limit orders are built on Uniswap X which means no gas fees. Also new to the web app is the data and insights pages with real-time candlestick charts, price data, transaction logs, and detailed pool data, all integrated into the Uniswap web app. All of these new releases come together to create one platform to help you swap smarter every time, no matter where you are, on web, mobile, or on the extension. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the extension waitlist and download the mobile app. Start swapping smarter with Uniswap. Are you launching a token? Is it already live? How are you managing the legal and tax obligations for providing token grants to your team? Is 
It's no secret that token management gets complicated. Between learning all the legal language and tax obligations in every country that your team is in, token grant management can feel like an obstacle course, but it doesn't have to. That's where Toku steps in. Toku provides practical tools to handle token grants, allowing for effective oversight of token distributions and payroll tax compliance for employees, contractors, advisors, and investors. They also handle tax withholdings through their real-time tax calculations that can be done by Toku or integrated into any payroll EOR providers in any jurisdiction. Toku is a trusted provider of Protocol Labs, DYDX Foundation, Mina Protocol, and many more. Get started for free and make token compensation simple at toku.com slash bankless. Bankless Station, I'm extremely excited to uh, bring on our guest, Chris Perkins. He's the president of CoinFund, which was one of the world's first crypto funds. We've actually had uh, Jake from CoinFund on the podcast previously. It's a VC fund. They do liquid crypto assets as well. And Chris himself has led quite the interesting life, I would say. Three professional careers. First, he was a Marine Corps officer, uh, served in Iraq in 2004 in a u- unit that actually experienced some of the heaviest casualties of the war. And then he made a switch over to TradFi, spent some time there, and now he is in crypto and has been for the past three years or so, I believe. Chris, welcome to Bankless. Hey, thanks, Ryan. And I guess to sum it up, uh, I guess I'm used to getting shot at. Oh my God, wow. <laughs> so uh, has that is that a continuation in crypto? Are we, uh, are we metaphorically give it, get, getting shot at? I mean, not to diminish it, I'm sure uh, in Iraq, it's, it's quite a bit different than what we're dealing with in crypto. But um, yeah, yeah, well, you know, maybe let's start there, Chris. Um, t- take us through the um, web of your life. How are these three things re- related? So uh, in, the, in the Marines in Iraq, actually getting shot at, and then you switch to TradFi, doing that for a while, and now you're in crypto. What's kind of the unifying theme of, of your career so far and your, and your life experience? Yeah, I, I guess I um, always wanted to be on the cutting edge. Uh, went to the Naval Academy, studied uh, national security of all things at Georgetown after that. And then I went into this um, adventure called the Marine Corps. I volunteered um, in Iraq. You know, my, my family was impacted by 9-11. I'm, I'm from the New York City area, couldn't get out and um, volunteered to go really to the front lines. Um, ended up in part of the Battle of Fallujah and then also really the Battle of Ramadi for nine months in 2004 to 2005. Um, saw a ton of combat there. Um, and then long story short, I was going to go in a bunch of different directions. I came back home, uh, knew a Marine who was at Lehman Brothers and um, went down there. They actually hired me on the spot. When you say Lehman Brothers, what day are we talking? Because that's uh, like very, yeah. very important. I guess I guess um, it was before the collapse, right? There's only the before and after. Well, but when, when did you join? So I joined in 2006 um, and literally started building out a derivatives business. Um, and then, you know, TLDR was got blown up in Iraq and then I went to Lehman brothers and I learned what it was like to get blown up there. Uh, I was on the ground floor of Lehman oh, when, we, wow. when we went bankrupt, right? I had a derivatives book, um, awful, awful experience. Um, but man, when, when you hit those types of experiences, it's also where you learn the most. And I'd been in finance for two years, but coming out of that, um, incredible learning that happened and you learned that like when when you hit the biggest crises like that's when you build the biggest relationships i could tell you all different types of stories but phone rang and uh it was Citigroup, and they said hey do you want a job and i said well what kind of package do you have arrogantly and they said it's called a great package it's called the job so i i literally had to get on the train on um, the next day and i had to go to Citigroup where i started cleaning up my own mess um and then Okay, so I'm at Citigroup, and then I got involved in the derivatives industry, and we had to take the $700 trillion derivatives industry from unregulated to regulated, 
I was, I, I led that initiative and guess who my regulator was? It was chairman Gary Gensler, chairman Gary Gensler. Oh, we know him. Right. So, um, you know, under, you know, it was, it was different back then. He was totally empowered by Dodd-Frank um, and, and built the largest uh, regulated derivatives business in the world, uh, took over a few other businesses. By the time I left Citigroup, um, I ran our foreign exchange prime brokerage business, and then I took over our futures business. Um, so I've had about 725 direct and indirect reports. I found myself running, Ryan, the largest derivatives intermediary in the world. But by nights and weekends, and I'd gotten into, you met, you know, you had Sandy on, like we'd gotten into crypto years prior. And I'm like, what am I doing, man? I'm running the largest intermediary in the world, but I can go home. I'm, I'm scared to death because my yen's not settling for days. I go home and I'm messing around with the Ave and Compound and I'm seeing technology. In fact, like, I'm like, why am I, I even needed at this point? So rather than, um, I decided to go all in and yeah, it was my third year at CoinFund, um, having a great time and um, it's, it's been quite an experience. I, I, uh, it's such an interesting background. I don't need, I, I want to camp on that for a while. I, I know we're going to talk about something, um, a little bit more financially geeky, uh, <laughs> something that, uh, I'm calling at least, and you got to educate me in this, the library for ETH. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that in the context of a reference rate and why it's important, what you're building over at, at coin fund. But, um, I, you know, I've got to ask a bit more about your background because, it is just, um, I don't know. You've you, you've led a very interesting life, my friend. Uh, I guess maybe maybe starting from the last part. So uh, give me give us some more detail on how you went from derivatives and traditional finance in one of the biggest banks uh, in the world to crypto. Like, how did that happen? Because not many people um, cross that chasm, right? There's a lot of people in TradFi who, even still today, and, and certainly at the time when you joined, think crypto is smoke and mirrors, uh, a scam, overrated, or something technical doesn't really impact them. But you somehow found a reason to, to move over. Why? I mean, it, it was pretty obvious to me years prior, um, you know, we all learned about Bitcoin. I, don't, I couldn't tell you what year it was, 2014 or something like that, and um, read a book and I'm like, wow, um, these smart contracts are really interesting. And and the utility of settlement was so obvious to me, right? When you're sitting and running a big derivatives um, clearing business, it's all about settlements and the latency. You just accumulate so much risk when things don't settle appropriately. And so in the beginning, you know, started to think, wow, this blockchain thing can really solve a lot of our problems. But, and I kept trying and trying to implement it and, and get it off the ground. And there was incredible resistance to, to really embrace superior technology that could have actually lowered risk. Um, and then, um, you know, as I started getting into understanding, um, really, I dove deep into the Ethereum ecosystem. And, and really understand the financial applications of Ethereum and how how it could change the world and lead to a much more accessible. So I, I bought into the uh, to the ideals, right? And the last thing I did at Citigroup was I was actually able to get Bitcoin and Ethereum futures approved on the CME. Um, this was a brutal, brutal feat. Um, wow. You know, you could imagine. I think there were like sixty five people that tried to say no. Um, and like, I'm a Marine, right? So I just had to battle, 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 um, and explain to them how, you know, we could risk manage the product, why it was, it was useful. Um, and look, I've spent a lot of time, even in my current job, I'm, the, I'm on the CFTC's global markets advisory committee. Um, I testified in front of Congress on, on, on derivatives market structure. We have a lot of work to do. Um, and you know, here's the TLDR it's that our entire 
regulatory apparatus is predicated on intermediaries. Now we have tech, and, and the reason for that is because we didn't have technology prior um, that would that could allow people to monitor and regulate it effectively. But now we do, and so it's it's very scary um, for you know for certain regulators, and I feel for them. Right? They should. When, when I went through um, what I went through with derivatives, like they were fully backed by Dodd Frank. Their their mission was clearly articulated. Now they're, they're really not empowered by legislation. And so it's a very challenging um, position that they're in. But like what I'm trying to do is not shit post on crypto Twitter, but rather engage, right? Like try to explain to them, look, I understand how it works. I, I, I built businesses in TradFi. We can use the technology to make the market safer, more efficient and more accessible. And so um, I'll keep trying and uh, you know, we're engaging wherever we can. Look, thanks for doing that. Thanks, thanks for trying. Thanks for bridging the gap. We we need a lot of that uh, with respect to to um, TradFi and certainly uh, Sandy from Franklin Templeton, who actually uh, connected us. Uh, Chris, we had her on uh, the podcast um, a, a few weeks ago. Uh, she's kind of fighting that that same fight. Um, I got to ask you though, because you've had experience with you know like uh, Gary Gensler in the past and, and Dodd Frank, and now you're kind of like um, talking to regulators right now. Um, you said you feel for them and uh, that there's kind of like they're they're maybe scared uh, of the future, that they're a little bit uncertain, that sort of thing. I think that's a, a great framing of it. And also, Chris, it assumes good faith. And sometimes when we're in crypto, uh, I know crypto Twitter can like t dial it up a lot and turn uh, extra toxic, but some of the actions coming out of uh, some of our regulators, some of the time, and maybe particularly the, the SEC a lot of the time, and Gary Gensler himself, don't actually seem in good faith. It, it, it doesn't actually seem like it's coming from a position of um, we're uncertain about the future, we're scared, there's no good uh, like uh, regulation legislation. It, it seems to, at least that the tone and tenor of it, has seemed like there is this kind of grasping for power maybe or control, and it's not like good faith engagement. D disabuse me of that, if, if you will, or maybe you think that's the case in some corners, not in others. How should uh, crypto natives think about or regulators and some of the, um, I guess, actions that that are coming out of like the U.S. has really turned hostile, Chris, and we're not we're not really sure why they're so hostile to crypto. Yeah, a, a couple of thoughts. I think the, what what I try to do is stay maniacally focused on the truth, right? And the truth is is that this is a technology that's very good for national security. It's a technology that's very good for our markets. It it, it follows American ideals. And so you just got to stay really, really focused on the truth. Um, we'd love to talk about some of the work we were doing around the national security front as well. Um, but the good news is, is that like we're on the right side of history. You and I both know it, Ryan, right? And when you talk to, you know, the younger members of Congress, they get it. And And like my son is 16. He had a real difficult job opening a bank account, but you know what? Opening up a wallet on MetaMask, no problem. And so I think that the inevitability is that, you know, we're on the right side of history. Um, we need to stay focused on engaging and focused on the truth and really educating and engaging because like we know how this, how the, how the, how this is going to end. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunate when things become political um, because that's not good for anyone. So like I continue to stay focused on the truth. Do you think it's the right framing that there are uh, many regulators who are operating in good faith and some that are not operating in good faith? Um, I, I can't speak for their motives or their career desires, um, but there are some that are working in good faith. Like, you know, I work closely with Caroline Pham. Um, 
she's asking for regulatory recommendations. And so one thing that we're doing right now um, on the CFTC committee that I'm working on is trying to put forth recommendations on how, you know, working with like powerhouses like Rebecca Redding, um, you know, how do we put forth recommendations that they should follow? And, and a lot of it is like on us to educate and engage. As far as other folks, um, look, I can't speak to their political agendas or motivations, uh, but all I can do is continue to speak for the truth. Um, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about national security because that also seems to be a huge issue right now. Um, is that all right? Yeah, I, w I would say, Chris, that, yeah, let's do that because um, the conversation has really shifted, I think. I mean, there's less talk of um, like Bitcoin being kind of like a Ponzi scheme, I would say. And a lot of the conversation has shifted to national security uh, concerns, to financial surveillance types of concerns. I know um, there there have been many, uh, call it kind of Elizabeth Warren, anti-crypto army uh, kind of types that have said that crypto is actually a tool that is uh, being used by, by um, terrorists, by being used by um, just like bat, uh, illicit illicit finance enemies uh, of the United States, and I know you've you you you've had some takes on that, and uh, I think you you came into your professional career. It sounds like from a national security perspective. So uh, I would love to hear a bit about that. One, one note for the audience, and I learned this when uh, we were first uh, like uh, meeting. Chris is bankless listeners might remember a a letter that um, Elizabeth Warren sent. Uh, I'm trying to look this up here. Um, it was a letter that basically targeted some folks in the crypto industry, you know, crypto lobbyist type groups, um, you know, Coin Center, Rebecca's group, others, and basically charged crypto with um, per perpetuating kind of a, um, a revolving door, basically taking folks from um, DC and then plugging them into the crypto industry and using that to kind of bend policy uh, to their will. And I think this letter from uh, Senator Warren was basically like, stop doing this. Uh, it kind of implying that that crypto was uh, kind of corrupting the process of, of engagement with lawmakers and DC. I believe, Chris, were you actually named in that letter? Uh, I wasn't named, but um, I, I did sign the first letter, and 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 I have visited Congress and talked to them about the imperative of national security. So, yeah, I've, I've been involved in those circles. Okay, so tell me about it. What's what's the context for a letter like that? And um, yeah, what, what's your take on this concern about national security in crypto? Yeah, so like I said, Ryan, um, I was in Ramadi in '04 and '05. It was a super violent place. Uh, I was shot at. I was RPG'd, was blown up by IEDs, um, you know, and there were some really bad dudes in that town. Um, and they were terrorists, they were foreign terrorists. Um, and all of that funding that they received to, to you know, come after us, that was all before blockchain, right? And they, they made very good use of technology. They, they used the internet, they would make these video CDs, they used cell phones, and their, one of their web technologies of choice were garage door openers, right? So as we would drive down the streets, they would have these IEDs and they would trigger them with garage door openers. And so like, as you move forward now, you say, okay, this, these technologies are so dangerous. Like, I don't know why we haven't outlawed garage door openers because, you know, they're so dangerous and, and they were used to attack me for, for nine months in Iraq. And so like, that's the paradigm that I'm attacking this problem with, right? Anti-crypto army. What is crypto? It's technology. It's not good or bad. It's just technology, right? And in fact, if you if you look at all the the analytics that we have, 
it's an, inc- it, you know, with crypto, you can generally find the transactions and it, and it leads you to the bad guy. Whereas, you know, fiat is pretty obvious. So had the opportunity to work closely with XCIA officers, military officers. We go down and say, look, this is how it works today. Fiat has failed us. Fiat, um, the, the, the sanctions regime that we have today is just not working. I mean, before I came into crypto, I did a lot of research and I looked across the OFAC uh, sanctions list and the amount of violations that we've seen amongst the banks. You know, people don't know it. Even Berkshire Hathaway got in trouble for funding uh, Iraq. Or sorry, Iran. Take take a look at it. Um, so the existing system's not working. However, this technology that we have, I believe, is an improvement. Um, and and I don't know why you know we're focusing on the technology. We should absolutely focus on the illicit actors, right? And oh, here's the other trick: we don't need legislation to, for regulators to go after illicit actors. They're fully empowered. So when you hear regulators say it's full of hucksters or fraudsters, that's great. Please, please, from the bottom of my heart, go after them, right? You have the power to do that. Please do it. And you'll hear, as you know, any crypto native will tell you, we have no time for fraudsters in our space. They're stopping us. They're slowing us down. So that's my take, my friend. Where do you think that energy is coming from? Sort of the the anti-crypto energy, just just in general, is it... um... Is it is it a place of just not understanding, a place of ignorance? Is it a place of fear, or like once it again is is it sort of uh, some malevolence uh, towards crypto um, coming from like a, I don't know an undetermined source? Yeah, I think it comes back to a lack of control and understanding. And I think if we were to step back and look at first principles and values, um, you know, obviously the technology that we work in every day is actually very congruent with American values of accept, of, of like providing additional access to markets. Um, so. You know, I think time is on our side. I think we're going through elections here shortly. I think as as time moves on, you know, you know, we're going to be in a very good spot. I'm I'm very long term bullish. Um, what what's your take on what the regulation should be with respect to uh, crypto? Then, so um, I like maybe just to, to steel man the arguments a little bit. Um, like against crypto and in favor of the existing uh, banking structure that at least the U.S. and, and the West uh, kind of has today. Right now, they have the power to freeze bank accounts. Let's say in a in a crypto world, they lose that power. Um, they can't freeze an individual's Ethereum address uh, necessarily. Maybe they have that power over a stablecoin like USDC and, and Tether. But if it's denominated in Bitcoin, if it's denominated in Ether, they lose that ability. Um, there are as well privacy mixing types of uh, tools and uh, many and the vast majority of uh, usage of, of those privacy mixing tools are, um, you know, basically people wanting just individuals wanting privacy so that, you know, somebody can't like connect all of their uh, all of their addresses together and, and drive their full financial history. And yet that can be used by um actors that are uh, you know like acting uh, against the, the US it can be used by terrorists it can be used by uh, North Korea and indeed uh, has been in some uh, small cases so like what do we do about this because if if you if you say that crypto is a uh, permissionless uh, censorship resistant technology it's a money outside of the existing uh, fiat system right that can sound scary for someone who is trying to like uh, centrally control the the flows of money uh, across the world in order to stop the bad guys. So, I mean, is there is there some merit to the um, national security arguments that the the critics of crypto of, of crypto might might be making here? The important thing to do is to have very clear guidelines and definitions, right? 
And and so like let's look at it in a couple of ways. There's a difference between technology and individuals that use that technology or entities that use that technology. Um, and so we need to have an activities-based regulatory regime. And so a couple of the things that I'm trying to advance in, in my work is as follows. Clear guidelines, right? So today, what is a security and what is a commodity? It shouldn't be that hard. And what I'm trying to push through are working with regulators to come up with clear empirical measures about which goes into which bucket. Okay. If it goes into a security, wonderful. We have we have a lot of regulations that 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 apply. Perfect. If it goes into a commodity, guess what? The CFTC still has full authority to police for instances of fraud, manipulation, and abuse. And we really, really owe it to our entrepreneurs that I deal with every single day to give them that clarity. Right. The other thing that we need to have very clear guidelines are is what is the separation between technology and entities and activities, right? And so like, what does that mean? The internet today, right? It's nobody controls it. It's it's available for use. Bad guys use it. Good guys use it. I don't think we want to take it away at this point. I think it's here to stay, right? But, you know, regarding crypto, what are the, pro what are the properties upon which, you know, a technology is not controlled? It is technology available to all. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, ruthlessly pursue any kind of illicit activity that uses that technology, right? And so if a bad guy is using the internet today, well, go after the bad guy. You're not going after the internet, right? And so working closely, you know, which is which is separate and distinct from an entity that builds technology for something nefarious, that's different, right? So really working on with regulators to come up with clear guidelines around that, and, and frankly, um, lawmakers as well. I'm wondering how this argument is is landing. It's it's been something that um, I I've been uh, thinking about a, a little bit. You know, like it, it felt like very much uh, the the United States in the '90s was um, all about finding ways to uh, export uh, freedom, uh, export a kind of like democratic uh, principles to the world, and the the U.S. government of the 1990s saw the internet as a way to do that. And now we're in 2024, and we see this kind of like rising, let's call it authoritarian axis, right? That's just ri rising throughout the world and in, in uh, other countries. And like from my vantage point, Chris, like uh, crypto is instilled with values of, of freedom, values of, of democracy, values that the, the United States, our nation, was founded on. And this is a, a confounding factor to authoritarian regimes. Any free society should be wholly embracing of this, right? It's a problem if you're Russia. It's a problem maybe if you are CCP China and you're trying to maintain totalitarian control of, of, of your capital and who uses your money system. Why would it be a problem for a uh, democracy that is trying to advance freedom? And um, I, I haven't heard a coherent response uh, like on, on that point from from DC, they just kind of continuously point to, well, crypto is full of uh, frauds and hucksters and look at uh, Sam Bankman fried But do you think that argument can land over the long term? You know, I was at uh, BlackRock's Digital Asset Symposium yesterday, and they had a human rights activist on stage. And that's the exact point he made. Uh, it was that these dictators, um, these regimes, they are scared to death of crypto. Why? Because it espouses all of those true American ideals that we believe in. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. 
How about uh, TradFi, Chris? So um, we're moving maybe from your uh, Iraq, uh, Iraq era and in the Marine Corps to kind of like Lehman Brothers into, into Citigroup. So um, what, what's your sense of the relationship between crypto and TradFi now in 2024? So are we making progress? Is, is TradFi starting to really understand the potential here? It felt to me like the Bitcoin ETF was maybe a, a breakthrough moment, but um, like maybe, maybe, you know, like it's happened before that. Anyway, what's kind of the temperature and how well TradFi is responding to crypto at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. I think within every single TradFi shop, there's a resident DGEN at this point who's trying to advocate to get things off the ground. Um, I think the Bitcoin ETF <laughs> is a really, really big deal, right? Because it's um, it's so funny. Like we made a lot of progress in explaining how Bitcoin is not a security, but then we make it a security by wrapping it in, in an ETF and, it, and it's starting to scale. I'm very excited about the, <laughs> the, uh, the ETF as well. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think a light bulb is going on now. I think when BlackRock really engaged, like BlackRock moves, moves markets. Uh, when I was at City, they were, they're the biggest, most important client in the world. When they say they want something, it that generally gets done, um, whether that's through a regulatory lens or otherwise, because, you know, they, they're huge and they represent a huge amount of, 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 of wealth. So that's a big deal. Um, that said, it's going to take time. Um, the banks are going to be constrained by their ability to embrace crypto because of these things called the Basel rules. I don't want to get too technical here, but like there's capital that they have to hold against their exposures and that capital is just too high. And so it's very difficult for them to be profitable. So it's going to take them a long time uh, because these Basel, these capital rules are going to hold them up. But um, and again, we go through these crazy cycles where it's like, oh, Bitcoin, blockchain, not Bitcoin and like public, no private. So I think like currently there's a little bit more focus on this like uh, private DLT stuff, but everyone knows where we're going. I think Sandy articulated it brilliantly. We're going to end up in a in, in, in a public arena. Um, and I think TradFi is going to come along. It's just going to take some time. Um, and, and there will be naysayers because it's scary. Uh, but Tokenization is important for, for for TradFi right now because of because it addresses some real utility, which is quicker settlement, lowering risk. Um, but yeah, it's just a process, and, and they'll come around. Um, but it's also scary, right? Because it undermines business models. A lot of TradFi is predicated on intermediaries, and now you don't need them as much in certain places. I don't think you're going to get rid of intermediaries because some clients want that high touch, um, but other other folks are going to say, I, I don't need that intermediary. I can go direct. So it'll be a process. So Chris, you said uh, Black BlackRock being the size that it is, BlackRock uh, gets what BlackRock wants, and uh, BlackRock at some point wanted a Bitcoin ETF, and uh, poof, there we go. We have a, a Bitcoin ETF. I've heard Larry Fink talk about tokenization as well as kind of like a, you know some excitement for BlackRock there. I, I imagine he sees kind of a you know, like a budding a growth opportunity. Um, but another another thing kind of on the list for BlackRock, and you tell me, might be the uh, Ethereum ETF. And we're going to talk about. Um, Ethereum a lot in kind of the next part of the conversation, but does BlackRock want an ETH ETF? Because if so, you know, that, that bodes well for our chances here. Do you have any takes on this? Yeah. So let me flash back to um, back in the day when after the global financial crisis, um, Dodd-Frank came out, right? And Dodd-Frank was very prescriptive about what was required for the regulators to execute. It's so funny because the CFTC diverted uh, away from that playbook once. And that was because BlackRock didn't like the level of 
of asset protection that the law was delivering. And so they said, we need to change, you know, guys, regulators, we want you to, to, to better, better uh, safeguard our collateral. And that was the only real deviation from that playbook with the CFTC back in the day. And so, yes, I think uh, BlackRock is focused on the ETH ETF. I think the correlations that we saw um, that stood up in, in some of the uh, the court rulings that we saw with, with DCG stand up. I think um, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Um, but I think the challenge, and, and by the way, I think it's going to, I think the TradFi mind really understands Ethereum because like Bitcoin, it's like, okay, what makes Bitcoin special? All right, there's there's 21 million coins that there can't be any more than that. So like it's limited supply, totally. Okay, I get it, store value. Then they go to like Ethereum and they're like, wait a second, you're telling me that there's yield on this thing and I can have smart contracts? That's pretty cool. And so I do think that that ETH as an asset class is going to be super appealing um, as people take the time to really understand it a little bit. And so I look, it's, it's a matter of, uh, of when, not if, and um, hopefully sometime this year. So you're doing some work on that front, Chris, at uh, CoinFund. And uh, that's where we get into kind of the, the more financial uh, geekery point in the conversation. I think it's, this could be absolutely massive in terms of advancing TradFi's ability to understand Ethereum and maybe their ability to build products uh, in the Ethereum uh, ecosystem in general and, and based on Ether as a productive yield-bearing asset. And I'll just maybe frame this up for uh, Bankless listeners and kind of like um, give folks a sense to to the the extent of my understanding. And, and I'll be kind of dependent on you, Chris, to to sort of take us forward. So after our conversation uh, with uh, Sandy from Franklin Templeton, um, we were just having a chat after the fact, and she said, "You know what? You got to check out Ryan. This is going to be." And David was there too. This is going to be massive uh, for crypto. Is um, there is a a new um, I'll call it a benchmark, but you might use a, a different word like reference rate, for, for instance, uh, for crypto that um, this guy named Chris is uh, heading up over at CoinFund and it's called Caesar. And uh, I said, oh, okay, well, tell me a bit more. And um, she, she told me more. And I said, well, that sounds a little bit like LIBOR, LIBOR for ETH, right? A reference rate LIBOR, which I understand is kind of like a big deal in traditional uh, finance. And I said those words, um, not fully understanding actually what um, what LIBOR is used for in TradFi, just knowing that it's one of those things that is incredibly important. And um, I'm wondering if you could kind of take up the conversation from there, both tell us what you're building and why it's relevant for uh, Ether and Ethereum and, and what you think the potential is here, but maybe start the conversation in this, this context of when uh, somebody talks about a LIBOR for ETH, what are we talking about? Like, what is LIBOR? Maybe we'll, we'll, we should start there. Yeah, let's step back. So interest rates drive, they're the pillar of modern day finance, right? There's nothing more important than interest rates. You turn on your Bloomberg in the morning, they talk about companies a little bit, but they mostly talk about the Fed and they talk about interest rates because interest rates drive everything. Um, the thing about interest rates previously is that they're very centralized and highly controlled, whether that's the Fed that sets rates. Um, they do it a few times a year. You know, it's it's not open. It's not transparent, per se. Uh, and people are always betting. What's the Fed going to do? Right. That That is modern finance, like it or not. LIBOR was a rate. And I said was. Um, because it was it was incredibly important back in the day. It underpinned hundreds of trillions of dollars in underlying uh, financial assets, right? It underpinned loans, it underpinned 
hundreds of trillions of dollars in derivatives, everything keyed off of this rate. And this rate was set by a bunch of, um, it was the London Interbank overnight rate. So it was a function of, of the, the, uh, the rate at which banks lended to each other. And the funny thing was, was that it was, um, it, it was determined by a handful of traders at a couple of banks where they would submit bids every day and that rate would be produced. Um, over time, it suddenly leaked out that that rate was being manipulated. And think about it. You have hundreds of trillions of downstream products that are going to, that, that people either have to pay or receive based on this rate, highly controlled and totally manipulated. Um, insane. And so, um, after that, and I, I don't even think they understand yet just the financial consequence of this manipulation. Go back and, and you can read about it. Um, but fast forward to today, there's been a lot of rates reform uh, across traditional finance. They've replaced LIBOR in many cases with a new rate called SOFR in the US. The other thing about rates is that they're very regional, right? So you have Eonia, you have Sonia, you have all these different rates throughout the world set by different governments. Um, but let's fast forward now to why this Ethereum, why Ethereum staking is so, so incredible, right? And by the way, in traditional finance, even today, the largest derivatives market in the world is the interest rate swap market, interest rate derivatives. This is a $500 trillion market, right? Just to like, I mean, the size of this is incredible. Um, and why? Why, is, why are interest rate derivatives so important? Because they give incredible utility, right? If you want to go get a mortgage, you know, you can get a floating rate or you can get a fixed rate. Well, you know, how do you get that fixed rate? Somebody swaps fixed versus floating, right? So it gives incredible utility to the consumer. So before the merge, we were sitting around at CoinFund and we were just like, wow, when we go through the, when, when, when we transition from proof of work to proof of stake, oh my gosh, we're going to have the first real interest rate in crypto. And this is going to be incredible because, and, and really what it comes down to, it already exists, right? Like it's out there. You can observe it. It's on chain. Um, but if we can build social consensus around an observation period, right, you can compose so much around it, right? And, and again, how do we bring in all of that utility of whether it's the interest rate swap market? Um, there's a bunch of different applications I'll get into, but the whole idea here is that with with proof of stake, you essentially have a kind of like a LIBOR, but it's global in nature. It's open source. It's completely observable and completely rec replicable. And if you build social consensus around a standardized snapshot, you can effectively build uh, like what we have in traditional finance, which is a forward curve. So you can project that rate in the future and you can build all next generation financial products around it. Um, and so really there are two primary use cases for a benchmark of this nature. And maybe I can talk through before I get into that, maybe how, how we constructed it. Um, but, but really there's two fundamental use cases. One is for benchmarking and the other one is to transfer risk. In, in one way, it seems like this reference rate is kind of like a, what we in crypto would call an oracle. Right. It's kind of like a, a data feed that power, you know, how like uh, chain link oracles power so much of, of DeFi, you know, LIBOR was essentially a reference rate that 
powered many of the, we'll call them contracts, TradFi contracts in real life. Um, is that a, a useful way to think of that for, for a crypto native, like LIBOR just being sort of like an Oracle? No, not really an Oracle. So like an Oracle would deliver that rate uh, to a smart contract. Does that make better sense? Okay. Yeah. So, so it would, like, it's more... It's more of a price itself rather than an oracle. It's more of a price itself rather than the oracle. And and yet maybe the way it was related in my mind is that it um that rate really matters, right? Like it sets a lot of the um I guess like you you said there were hundreds of trillions of dollars that were un- underpinned by uh, LIBOR. When you say underpinned by by LIBOR, what what do you actually mean? So how is this price feed essentially being like fed into the hundreds of, of trillions of dollars and what happens or what yeah. did happen in the case that there's an inaccuracy? Yeah. So one of the most uh, prolific products in traditional finance is something called an interest rate swap. Okay. We call swap something different in, in, in crypto land, but in traditional markets, a swap is a derivative. And usually it's with where one side pays fixed and the other side um, re- uh, receives float. Okay. And so, or you can have something called a basis swap where it's floating versus floating, which I'll get into in a second. Right. But why would somebody want to receive or pay fixed? It's because they have a view on where those interest rates are going. And if somebody wants to hedge themselves from a spike in, in, in the rate, um, well, then maybe they're going to pay fixed and receive floating if that makes sense, or the opposite way around, where they want to understand, um, where, they're, where they're keen to have receive a fixed cash flow, uh, they're happy to pay a floating rate. And so like a good example of that is like a fixed rate mortgage, right? People want a fixed rate mortgage. And so what the bank does behind the scenes is they'll swap out uh, fixed for floating in order to give that that product out to a consumer. And so interest rate swaps, and, and I think you guys had uh, Simon on who, from Volts back in the day, he talked about this market, yeah. um, but, but it, it is the largest derivatives market in the world. Um, or you can have a view on two different floating rates that's called a basis swap, which is floating versus floating. And so like, you know, I can talk about why that's applicable in Ethereum land, but, but this is a very, very, co- it's the most common, most prolific derivative in the world. Okay, and I, I called it an oracle earlier, and and, and your comment was uh, maybe it's 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 more like a, think of it as a price feed, but it is um, determined by you said a handful of uh, traders, right? And I, I you you were talking, you, you kept using the term was for LIBOR because it sounds like maybe it doesn't exist in the same form it used to. I I recall in was it twenty twelve, uh, kind of the the LIBOR uh, scandal. Um, you know, took hold or, or became uh, evident and became public information. And um, it was essentially being corrupted, right? So this is sort of um, like the, the traders who were corrupting it, like what, what were they doing? What benefit? Were they, were they sort of corrupting it in ways that would give them an advantage? Or how exactly was it being corrupted back in 2012? So they would have a... a traders would have a book and they would be positioned in that book um, to make money depending on whether that rate went up or went down. And so, um, or people within the bank would have certain positions where like if the rate went up or down, they would stand to make or lose a lot of money. And so there would be, you know, according to public documents, they would whisper in some of these folks' ears and say, hey, you know, bump that rate up. A, and and a, little, a little change could result in billions of dollars of, of, of P&L. And so there was manipulation of that rate. And when they submitted those um, 
their levels uh, to to create and 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 settle that rate every day. Um, it reflected the the risk that they had on their books, and so that they could profit in certain cases rather than lose money for their own books. But the downstream implication was just massive. This was a huge scandal at the time, right? Like what happened huge in TradFi scandal. when this was revealed? Yeah, huge issue. Um, there was all types of fines, billions of dollars of fines to the various banks. You can go back in history and look at it. Um, and then there was a number of benchmark reforms where LIBOR was was essentially phased out in, in favor of of rates that were more transactional based. One was one of them was called SOFR as an example. So there was, I mean, it was a massive, massive um, issue. Um, cost cost the banks billions of dollars in fines and then even more money to to try to figure out the way forward. So it was a, it was a huge challenge. Yeah, I was going to ask you because it's so fascinating because in uh you know in crypto we're 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 all about creating corruption resistant protocols and it it sounds like this price feed in particular was not uh as corruption resistant as it needed to be. And I I'm wondering with some of these other reforms like the the sofer that you mentioned are they I guess they're they're trying to add a layer of corruption resistance through through better protocol design, just trying to translate this for for crypto natives a, a little bit and and through regulation right and so yeah. um, that's kind of like I guess the traditional financial uh, system that's their way of, of doing it hey we'll, we'll kind of design this a little bit differently we'll uh, add additional regulation we'll put some more kind of like uh, checks and balances and are these new uh, reference rates, these new benchmarks, are they more corruption resistant? Are they better? Did they like, quote unquote, fix the problem that was with LIBOR or do they still have like some uh, some holes in them as well? Well, I, I guess time will tell, but um, they, they, they tend to be more transactional based now. Um, but, you know, this is just w one of many different rates. I mean, look, look at the Fed itself. It sets rates as well. Um, and it, and I, I think the point with traditional rates that we see is that they're very centralized. Right. And wouldn't it be amazing if we had decentralized rates um, that were more transparent and, and observable? So, you know, is anything perfect? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, but it, they're trying to get away from this like dark room um, manipulate. They're trying to abstract and eliminate an ability to, to manipulate. But um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's everyone's favorite season in crypto, tax season. And crypto tax is always an absolute headache, especially for all you DGENs out there. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software built for DGENs by DGENs. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on making complex transactions into easy ones, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as a thousand other integrations as well. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Plus, for all the airdrop farmers out there, Crypto Tax Calculator has your back as they are consistently adding support for new and upcoming layer ones, layer twos, and all the airdrops that you're currently farming. 2024 is the year when the DGENs do their crypto taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at CryptoTaxCalculator.io and get a 30% discount with code BANK30. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Mantle formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from 
all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming, and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRails. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. Arbitrum is the leading Ethereum scaling solution that is home to hundreds of decentralized applications. Arbitrum's technology allows you to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. Arbitrum has the leading DeFi ecosystem, strong infrastructure options, flourishing NFTs, and is quickly becoming the Web3 gaming hub. Explore the ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. Are you looking to permissionlessly launch your own Arbitrum Orbit chain? Arbitrum Orbit allows anyone to utilize Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own Orbit chain, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you are a developer, an enterprise, or a user, Arbitrum Orbit lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Visit Arbitrum.io and get your journey started in one of the largest Ethereum communities. Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. Driving real-world use cases like mobile payments and mobile DeFi, and with Opera Minipay as one of the fastest-growing Web3 wallets, Celo is seeing a meteoric rise with over 300 million transactions and 1.5 million monthly active addresses. And now, Celo is looking to come home to Ethereum as a Layer 2. Optimism, Polygon, Matter Labs, and Arbitrum have all thrown their hats in the ring for the Celo Layer 2 to build upon their stacks. Why the competition? The Celo Layer 2 will bring huge advantages like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability secured by Ethereum validators, and one-block finality. What does that all mean for you? With Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low and you can even pay for gas natively using ERC20 tokens, sending crypto to phone numbers across wallets using Social Connect. But Celo is a community-governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo forums, follow Celo on Twitter, and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum. Okay, so now let's uh, let's get back on course where where you're going, Chris, towards um, what you're what you're building with uh, Ethereum and with an ETH uh, reference rate and kind of what what I called earlier the the LIBOR for Ethereum. Could you just talk about in broad strokes uh, how it's designed, and then we could talk about like like what it does and what some of the the applications uh, might be. But how's this designed? Yeah. So before the, before the merge, uh, before the movement to proof of stake, we realized that gosh. These validators, and at the time, um, it wasn't the close to a million now, um, but they're receiving rewards every single day. And they're receiving those rewards in the form of emissions and transaction fees. And if we're able to look across now, it's between 900,000 and a million different validators. And if we were to take those rewards of those emissions and those transaction fees, take the mean and annualize it. We would essentially have this, and, and I don't want to use the word risk-free rate, but we'd have this like standardized rate for Ethereum. And if we can build social consensus around it, you can really build on top of it. And so there's two components to, to Caesar. Um, there's those emissions and transaction fees. Emissions are a function of the number of val validators. And we're watching this, this number grow. There's a lot of talk within Ethereum circles around, you know, you know, what's the end game here? Um, but generally speaking, the more validators you have, the lower the emissions. Okay. And then you have transaction fees. 
And transaction fees come from existing supply. Those get rewarded to those 900,000 validators. Um, and when you step back and we started observing this rate, it was fascinating because, of course, as you saw more validators come on, you see the baseline rate come down, the emissions come down. But those transaction fees were really, really interesting. Um, the first thing that we identified was during FTX, um, November of uh, 22, right? Massive spike in the rate. And why is that? It's because those transaction fees went through the roof. People were willing to pay whatever they had to pay to get those assets off of the exchange on chain, get them safe, right? So it jumped, you know, up to like seven percent. It was, it was, it, it jumped materially. Fast forward then uh, to March of of twenty three, another like massive spike, and we're like, gosh, what's happening? What's happening? And wouldn't you know it, SVB happens. And again, whether it's the activity between Tether and, and USDC, or again, fear of something terrible happening, look, I got to get my assets on chain. We again saw those Ethereum transaction fees go, go through the roof and, and the rate spiked materially. But then the one thing that people don't get, and like I, I, I show them the graph, we can maybe put it in the show notes, but we saw uh, the staking rate go through the roof in May of uh, 23. And, and you know what happened in May? Ryan, what's that? Pepe, right? So Pepe started happening and you saw that all this activity on the layer one. And again, those transaction fees went, went very, very high. And so this is really important because this rate is now showing a lack of correlation to like external macro market factors, which is, which is very important. But anyway, that's how it's constructed. Um, what we do is we take the mean annualized return of emissions plus transaction fees. And what we see is something that's really interesting. Um, right now, like yesterday, uh, the print for Caesar was about 3.5%, okay? And people are like, oh, that's terrible. ETH staking rates are so awful. Um, TradFi rates are so much better right now. But that's actually not true um, because there's a concept of something called a real yield. And when you adjust for inflation, you'll find that that this Ethereum rate, Caesar, is actually very, very competitive uh, when it comes to uh, the yield that you can get through traditional finance. So that's the construction. Okay, so so many questions uh, about this then, uh, Chris. And it, like one one basic question is, so there is sort of a, um, a percentage uh, yield on like websites like um, ultrasound.money, uh, for instance, right? So if I go to ultrasound.money right now, um, I see the issuance reward uh, that that you mentioned. That's about three percent per year. And then, um, well, yeah, uh, do, I think I also see a transaction reward. And you can kind of calculate the like how much ETH yield you have, or if you deposit your funds into like a Rocket Pool or a Lido. You know, you, you generally know what you're getting. You're getting like four percent. You're getting four point two percent. How are those numbers different than Caesar? Yeah. So it all depends. Like, what we really need to do as an industry, the most important thing we could do is is build social consensus on an observable rate. Because if you have social consensus, then you can start. Like, I'm an old naval officer, and if you look at like containerized shipping, right? Like ships were really hard to pack back in the day. And then all of a sudden one day is like, guys like, listen, if we put them all in a box, we can really stack them and we can build all types of things. And so those rates, um, they, they use different types of methodologies. Um, 
you know, our methodology is is transparent and online, and, and we're not competing with them in any way, shape, or form. Um, but what we've done is we've laid out a methodology, um, and we've used some of the regulatory. Um, there's a, there's there's principles around constructing a benchmark. It's called uh, these It's called an IOSCO principle. So we've we've followed IOSCO principles in creating this rate, ensuring that there's sufficient redundancy, et cetera. Um, and then when you institutionalize a rate, you have someone who administers the benchmark, and then you have somebody who um, calculates and distributes it. And so we've got a partnership with Coindesk Indices. Um, you know, what we do is like we're trying to find like the 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 baseline return uh, across the ecosystem. And so rather than take a small number of validators, we try to take as many as possible. Um, and then what we do is we've actually found it. Some of them, um, some of these validators don't operate very efficiently. And so, um, and that's okay. Um, and so what we're trying to do is take that mean annualized return, um, standardize it, and then allow institutions to use it as a benchmark upon which they can build. Like, you know, why was LIBOR so adopted? It was because it was a standardized rate. And if that was the standardized floating rate, then you can also build because everyone observed it socially, then you could observe these products where, okay, hey, I, I need a fixed rate, so I'm going to trade fixed versus floating. Um, today, when you go to um, a staking protocol, right, um, do you know what rate you get? It's uh, like th their pool, right? The, the rate you get of their what you pool. Get, you get what you get, and they take 5 or 10%, right? Right. As we get into more of an institutional market, I think things are going to shift a little bit because a lot of institutions are going to say, well, wait a second, I want you to, to, to achieve the, the minimum standard, right? If you earn above that, then yeah, I mean, you, you earned it. Um, but what, what consumers will want is they're going to want transparency of a third party calculation. Um, and of course that provider can price, you know, either above or below, but that's a much more sustainable, transparent model then, hey, you get what I get and I take 10%. By the way, like having been around for a long time, when you have a model like that, pretty soon people are like, oh, I don't want, I don't want you to take 5%, you know, show me a better price. And then those fees get compressed very closely to zero. I think by introducing benchmarks, it's actually gonna be really healthy for the staking community uh, because they can price relative to that benchmark. I think what you'll find is that most professional stakers outperform that benchmark. And then consumers want a third-party transparent benchmark rather than saying, oh, what's my rate? Well, I don't know, whatever I get. Well, what, what is it? So that's one instance. And then you can actually get even more sophisticated. And remember that, that thing I talked about, fixed versus floating? Um, if you have a standardized rate, you can say, well, wait a second. Um, you don't want 3.5%? Well, 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 you don't want this floating rate? What if I pay, um, you know, what if I give you a fixed rate? of three of, of 3%, right? Uh, and you can do that through swaps. And so I think you're going to see a lot of lot more sophistication around the staking industry. Um, because like, this is like, this is what makes Ethereum great. The, the staking yield is is a beautiful structured product. And, and so many, so many things can be composed around it to meet the financial obligations of, of the consumer on the other side. 
I see. So this is just a, a mass standardization. It's it's kind of the mean. It's kind of the average of of all yeah. validators basically, and it's not specific to one pool like Lido, and it's not constructed in like kind of like a we we don't really know how maybe uh, ultrasound money sort of d- derives its percentage. This is meant to be a standard representation of how much yield uh, the average staker will get at a particular 100%. period of time. Is that right? 100%. So. If, so so if Chris, if this says like four percent, if the Caesar says four percent, then that's basically what uh, the average staker is making. Less any fees that they pay to a third party. That's kind of like the four percent is sort of the number, uh, you know, f- of ETH staking on that particular for that particular time period. Is it like how often is it refreshed? Is it like daily? Is it like you know minute by minute? Is yeah. it hourly? Yeah, so we can do it fairly often, but what we do is we publish it once a day. We publish it at 4 p.m. New York. We calculate it over a 24-hour period. Um, we, we we start calculating it right after 1 o'clock. We look back 24 hours, and then we produce it at 4 p.m. What we don't have yet and what we're really excited about is is a forward curve, right? And so we have the baseline rate that we set every day, mm. but now the question is going to be, hey, what's it going to be like in three months? And and as you start mm. seeing derivatives trading, and we're hopeful that that's going to happen pretty soon, you can start having this thing called a forward curve, and that will start informing um, a lot of really interesting applications. So, Chris, um, you hesitated uh, when using the term um, risk-free rate uh, to describe this. And I, I want to talk about what risk-free rate actually means in traditional finance and why you like reach for that word and then also kind of hesitated or, or put a caveat around it and applying it to this particular instance. My understanding of like risk-free rate from just uh, an investor perspective or like, you know, uh, uh, you know bus- your business class 101 is that is kind of the the cost of capital, the cost of, of money. So you can evaluate all your other existing uh, investments if you are making more than the risk-free rate, let's say, which is, again, determined generally by um, by kind of like the Fed. And that, you know, that's where you get the rate. And so if the Fed is, is paying 5% interest, uh, as you're paying now, and um, you make an investment, and that investment is only yielding like 4% annualized per year, well, you're not doing very well on that uh, investment, right. right? Because 5% is the threshold. That's the risk-free rate. Like, Why would I do any other investment at less than 5% or less than the risk-free rate? So it's kind of like, call it the cost of capital in in general. Anything you consider investing in, it better make over 5%. Why? Because if you can't make over 5%, just put it in in T-bills. You know you're going to get the money back. The U.S. has a money printer. It's going to pay you that 5%. So your investments need to be making 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% and out on the risk curve. That's why the concept of risk-free rate is is so important. And it's generally for the entire world because the U.S. is the the global money, basically, is kind of determined by uh, the Fed rate. And so that's the concept of risk-free rate. Chris, would you add anything to that? No, I think I think you nailed it. So if I'm, by the way, I, I wouldn't even say like the risk-free rate is risk-free at this point. Um, there's been a couple of issues <laughs> that we've seen over the last few years. But um, yeah, in, in theory, if, if you don't take any risk, that's the return that you should achieve, right? And we've... Mm-hmm. And the other thing is like you, you did talk about how the US is global reserve currency for sure, but like Ethereum is actually truly global, right? And in a way we constructed this in a similar manner, right? If I have capital, what's the minimum that I should be able to achieve without, you know, liquid restaking or anything else? We can talk about that another time, right? So what is that baseline foundational return that I should receive? And like, that's how we constructed Caesar, 
right? Because you should be able to achieve pretty much that mean annualized return. Yeah. So I, I want to apply this to, um, to to crypto then, Chris, and, and maybe you were, you were kind of going there. Um, so basically, when I think about um, the fiat world and the traditional finance world, or just, you know, general investing, any sort of investment I want to make with my dollars, right, it better achieve more than the, you know, the, the, whatever the Fed's paying, the, the risk-free rate. And um, at least I view this in a similar way um, in the crypto uh, ecosystem, the crypto economy. I sort of have selected for myself Ether, the asset, as kind of the uh, denominator, right, as kind of like the um, the unit I use. I know others use Bitcoin and other things, but like for me, it's it's actually um, been Ethereum the, the entire time. And so the ETH rate. And so if I'm making an investment in let's call it a um, some yielding product that's taking my ETH and like restaking it, something in eigenlayer, let's say, or if I am taking my uh, ether and I'm selling that for some sort of alternative investment in crypto, say a token, I want to go buy some some hot DeFi token. Well, um, my risk-free rate is actually basically what what Caesar, Caesar is saying. So it's it's you know if it's four percent right now, the investment that I'm about to make had better make over like using that equivalent ETH uh, and like 4% in, in a token investment. Otherwise, it's not worth it for me. Why? Because I could just take my capital, I can you know tra- transmute it into Ether, and I can get the kind of the internet bond yield, if you will, of, of the Caesar rate, and I'd, I'd be quite happy with that. So from that vantage point, I kind of have started, at least from my own calculation, to consider the the yield on Ether, the Caesar type of rate, to be the the risk-free rate for me and kind of the cost of capital rate for me. What's your take on that? Do you think that Caesar can be used in, in that way? Am I alone in thinking this? Does it really depend on how um, the world basically uh, thinks about Ether as an asset in comparison to, to Bitcoin or other assets? Yeah, what's your take on this uh, overall? You said it much more eloquently than I could have ever said it, my friend. That's exactly what we we set out to design. Um, you know, if you're and and when in finance you're taking you, you take risk and you want to be rewarded for that risk. That's something called the efficient frontier. Um, this is exactly it. Like if 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 you have capital, um, you know what's the what's the minimum you should achieve in crypto? It's it hopefully it's Caesar. Now, what gets really interesting is how does this rate compare to fiat? Right. And everyone's like, oh, you know, 5%, you know, treasuries are at 4%. Again, when you adjust it post EIP 1559 and you look at inflation, this is actually a, a very, very interesting yield because it outperforms fiat from a real yield perspective. And so now you start thinking about even productionalizing, like, how can you express a view on this rate? Well, maybe I have a view that, like, that, that rates are going to come down in fiat. Um, uh, you know, versus Ethereum, you can actually do a swap, a basis swap, floating versus floating. And I think that's going to be a really interesting on-ramp uh, for rates um, as, as you look at ETH relative performance to other rates around the world, like super, super interesting going forward. So talk about um, real versus nominal uh, returns a little bit in kind of the uh, the fiat context, which you just kind of castigated a little bit, and versus um, the the Ethereum uh, context. So Chris, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when people are talking about um, nominal rewards versus yield rewards, or, or sorry, in, uh, nominal interest versus 
um, like real interest rates, right? If you take something like a, a treasury and you are uh, receiving 5% in terms of yield on your uh, interest, that is the nominal yield, right? This is 5% as denominated in US dollars. The problem is if uh, inflation and your, your purchasing power uh, of those dollars decreases, um, then you have to kind of like uh, subtract that from and, and get the real return. So if you are 5% nominal return, but inflation in any particular period of time is 8%, well, you're net losing in terms of real re returns 3%, right? So you, you kind of like do, do the math there. Um, you're only making real returns if the uh, inflation is kind of less than the, the nominal return that you're getting. So ideally like 5%, inflation would be 3%. All right, I'm making making 2%. Now, this depends on some calculation of um, purchasing power, right? Which traditionally, we also depend, I believe, on the U.S. government for that calculation with like some form of a consumer price index type of calculation. We don't generally use, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong in finance circles, but we don't generally use like issuance as the uh, inflation rate. So the supply of money, if you go look at kind of like base money, M0 or M1, the supply of fiat money, man, that's a weird denominator. And it's not generally what people mean when they say um, real returns, is it? And yet I think you are using that as, as sort of issuance as the denominator for um, Ethereum. And you're saying, well, positive real returns because um, the protocol itself is uh, issuing less than uh than the kind of the the actual return on the on the yield and what caesar says and and therefore it's uh it's always real return i i'm wondering if you could you square that a little bit for me because we don't have this notion of um uh pricing i guess do we or cpi yeah. inside of uh an ecosystem like uh crypto d does that line of questioning even make sense to you yeah i guess so it's a, i guess it's just a much more pure cleaner uh, observable calculation to do with Ethereum, right? We, we you know, post EIP-1559, you go to ultrasound money, you know exactly, you know, how inflationary or deflationary Ethereum is. And, you know, the point that I'm just simply trying to make is that um, this is very transparent. It's very open. It's very easy to to see that the real rate here um, does just fine against um, the real rate of traditional of, of you know things like like treasuries today so um a lot of times in crypto land we get very focused on nominal rates but i think if you step back a little bit maybe it's a little bit more interesting what do we make of these uh spikes so um you know i think uh listeners will be looking at or if you're watching this on youtube you'll, you'll see kind of the the caesar historical values uh on the screen hopefully and when you were talking introducing us to caesar chris you were, you were mentioning these very spikes you know one in kind of like the october October, November, 2022 period of time where we jumped up from something like, it looks like, like, you know, 6% to uh, an 8% or something like that. And there's some other spikes and these are primarily like usage based spikes, I would think, because the bulk of this is not consensus rewards. That is, is sort of issuance. The bulk of this is, um, in Ethereum, what we call MEV or transaction fees, right? So it's like the ordering of transactions, the tips people. It it just indicates, I would guess, a time when the um, the gas fees on Ethereum were particularly high, and so they spike up. This is a much different set of values than you'd see for like a a fiat LIBOR type of rate, which I would imagine would be dependent on like Fed policy a lot more. Wouldn't be as spiky. I, I don't know. What do you make of this, and what should we learn from from the spikes? So it depends, right? LIBOR had a counterparty risk element to it. And so when the banks were really teetering, those rates had, had idiosyncratic impact. But 
Huh. This is really important because why, why, does, why are rates important? One of the reasons is for risk transfer and hedging. Okay, our entire derivatives industry actually started with agriculture, and it was it, it was it was designed to hedge against price, right? So let's talk about the use cases because this is very important. Today, you have a lot of people who are focused on tokenization. You have layer twos that have to pay gas. You have exchanges that subsidize gas. They get very very nervous when gas prices spike materially, right? And and that's a bad day for them uh, because it's coming out of pocket. Okay, so gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful if they um, paid a fixed rate and received floating? Because if they're receiving floating and gas prices, transaction fees go up, well, they're hedged because they're, they're paying that fixed rate and, and they're receiving floating. All right, so that's one side of the trade. Who's on the other side of the trade? Who would want to receive fixed? Well, remember those stakers? Um, you know, they have big teams, they got to feed them, they got to pay them. Um, what rewards do they get if they're staking? Well, they're getting these variable rewards. And so if the, if, if the rate goes way down, um, how do they run a business, right? And so what they want to do, they would love to receive a fixed return and they would love to pay floating um, because that allows them to run a sustainable business model. Or you take it a next step further, if they receive fixed, they can actually pass that on to a consumer that wants a fixed rate of return. And so it unlocks a lot of opportunities. And so now you have a two-way market that's starting to form where people, some people want to pay fixed, some people want to receive fixed um, because it, it helps their business model. Um, and, and that's the beauty. And this is the reason why interest rate derivatives and traditional finance are so big, because you have a two-way market where you have people that are trying to hedge real risk. And you can only do that if, I mean, you can create the most liquid products only if you have that social consensus around a standard. Um, look, you know, there are ways you can design things much more specific and bespoke, and that's fine. And people do that all the time in structured finance. Or you can have a baseline um, reference rate that allows people to help accomplish their goals. And so that's why these spikes are so material. That's why people need to figure out how to hedge against these spikes. Um, otherwise, they're they're taking risks that that doesn't help their business model. What's the early way we should be kind of uh, thinking about this? Then, Chris, is it a bit more like um, a typical co commodity, like an oil, let's say, or like um, I don't know, wheat? All you know, you, you mentioned um, derivatives were, were basically based on these types of of commodities, and I can imagine at least right now, with respect to Ethereum, you, you could have some parties that are purchasing. Uh, block space or denominated in ETH that want to just hedge various positions. So, for example, um, just this week, Reddit added um, Ether and Bitcoin to its balance sheet. And according to its um, its uh, SEC filings, one of the reasons it added Ether is a store of value, but also because it anticipated purchasing blockchain <laughs> block space in the future, right? So it's like buying some Ether in order to p purchase it. And so you can imagine, let's say we get into a world where all of the banks, you have like Coinbase and such, they're going to need to settle some transactions on uh, Ethereum in some way. And so they want uh, like to kind of hedge those uh, types of positions. And so they might uh, purchase a product like this, right? And it'd be similar, I guess, to maybe an airline or something that is looking at the, you know, the cost of um, 
uh, fuel as being an important you yep. know cost of goods in, in terms of providing its product and it watches some some hedges against that and so is that where you kind of start to see this market evolve because if we go all the way to sort of dollars right it is uh, dollars are much more than a than a commodity, right? It, it's like, um, well, I mean, you just gave the example that's very consumer centric of how a uh, a mortgage interest rate is kind of you know moves from a fl- floating to a fixed, and then I can you know take a mortgage out at a fixed rate for thirty years in the U.S. because of these derivatives products, basically. But I don't know that we'll get there, or like we certainly won't immediately with Ethereum. Uh, at least I don't think. Is it more similar to the commodities type case? Yeah, so those are the businesses I ran in TradFi. And to your point, airlines hedge their hedge their gas or their jet fuel all the time. Um, so this is an obvious, um, beautiful uh, example of, of ways that industry participants can mitigate their risk. Um, a couple of things to, to unpack. Number one, like I see this as a rate just like any other rate. And for that matter, like the ETF, right, it fits really really cleanly into legacy systems. Um, so I do think it can be pretty easily adapted. The regulatory construct should be very clear as well. Um, interest rates are commodities under, you know, it doesn't sound like it, but like under under the law, um, interest rates are commodities. That's why we have futures on interest rates, like this, the euro dollar contracts. And so literally we're working with um, a number of different regulated exchanges, futures exchanges right now on offering fixed versus floating contracts. You know, or the other one that's really neat right now is total return. And, you know, getting back all the way to the ETF, right? The ETF is going to be awesome. Um, the problem with the ETF is it's going to be really, really hard to give yield, which is like one of the greatest benefits of Ethereum is yield, right? And so why is that? It's because like bonding and unbonding um, and redemptions are going to be, you know, there's going to be some liquidity risk on bonding and unbonding periods when you have to unstake versus liquidity risk. And so my sense is that the SEC is not going to allow staking out of the gate. If you look in Canada, um, the the Canadian regulators have approved 50% staking. So it's kind of like a a partial return, uh, not a total return. And so it's going to take some time to enhance that yield for ETF products. And so, you know, in the meantime, I do expect for a very for a number of them, we're already talking to a number of players in the space on how can you deliver like truly benchmarked total return institutionally, because that that's that's what we want, right? Like, you know, do do you want to have like just ETH sitting there, you know, if you read it? No, you want ETH plus yield, and and you and and you want to make sure that that yield that you that you receive is, you know, for most institutions benchmarked and 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 very observable. So that those are some of the things that we're we're looking at. But yeah. This is very much like a commodity, um, and and that hedging. This is what's exciting about these next generation products that are coming in, right? We're going to allow industry participants to hedge their risk or to to express market views on the direction of. And what is this? It's about it's it's about the the vibe, the, the liveliness of Ethereum. Ethereum gets very busy, rates go up, right? And so, uh, yeah, very very exciting applications going forward. That's uh, very interesting. Yeah, Ethereum gets very busy, rates go up, and sort of the the cost of capital for the the crypto, uh, I guess, ecosystem, the crypto economy kind of goes up, and you have to reflect that in all various ways. Is this a um, 
is this a, a, a price feed that can be used? It sounds like definitely in, in traditional finance. Can it also be used uh, on chain as well? And uh, yeah, like, is it is it kind of ambidextrous in, in that way? It's both off chain and it can be on chain for DeFi. Yeah, totally. Um, super excited about some DeFi applications. Um, we're integrating with with a couple of oracles um, as well. We're, we're delivering it. Uh, I've got partners at, at CoinDesk that that deliver it via API. So, so yeah, it, it's totally applicable on chain. Um, we're excited about that. Like, look, we're crypto natives. Always want to do whatever we can to help the DeFi ecosystem. Um, it's one that we love. So, so for for sure. And and you can see those same products apply on chain as well. Um, so yeah, very excited about that. How do you um, make sure you don't become LIBOR and uh, get get corrupted in that way? Um, are there some mechanisms against that? Is it sort of more on chain? Is it more auditable than something like LIBOR yeah, was? Hundred percent. Yeah, I don't I don't touch this thing at all. Um, we have the methodology. We run it um, very clearly. Everything is transparent. Um, so. 100% like everything here is designed to to read off the beacon chain and produce those results. And so there's no manual intervention or anything else. Again, like if there's one thing I can em emphasize, we need social consensus around a benchmark. You know, we designed we designed it one way, we threw something out there. Um if not if if our rate I I like the way we constructed it, but like the industry needs a benchmark. Um, or series of benchmarks so that we can build and compose and allow people to hedge risk. But of course, um, you know, unlike LIBOR that was centrally controlled and manipulated, you know, the methodology is public. It's on our website. Um, happy to walk anyone through, you know, what we observe um, anytime. So it's social consensus around that benchmark is the important thing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm wondering, going back to like traditional finance and Sandy, who set up this conversation, she was, she was very excited about this, right? What are the wins for traditional finance when we have social consensus around a benchmark for um, Ethereum rates and, and Ether rates? Like you mentioned the ETF. So possibly this gets used in that to um, have us uh, ha have it like a more productive yielding asset inside of a, a future Ethereum ETF. Um, like what else? Why why was Sandy so excited about this? Yeah, so TradFi understands rates, right? It is a huge part of of traditional finance. The thing that they struggle with are all the operations around custodying of ETH and you know safeguarding and all other stuff. This is a fully synthetic. Right. It's just a rate. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to, to, you know, you don't have to hold that ETH to earn the rate. You can find a dealer that will trade synthetic products or futures products that allow them to get access to this very exciting real yield that we talked about. Right. So you kind of abstract all those operations. You give them something that they, they get like, oh, it's just another benchmark. Okay, I can trade that. I think it's going to go up. I think it's going to go down. I think it's going to perform this way or this way against these other rates, which is like, again, the largest derivatives market in the world. Um, so that's interesting. The other thing that they love is like this whole idea of you get what you get and I take 5% or 10%. That doesn't work for tradi the traditional mind. They say, hey, listen, no, you're going to pay me relative to a benchmark. And, and, and that's what I expect. And so those are the two things, whether it's the total return aspect or, you know, what, what I just described that that is really appealing. Like, like you know, the ETF is, is you, you take it, you make a security and it fits into their into their ops. Here, it's just another rate. 
just another rate. And yet you can build so much in uh, traditional finance. On uh, Obviously in DeFi, you can build a lot into it, but in traditional finance, you can build so much more. And I guess it's, you know, uh, coming full circle on, on this conversation, you said at the beginning, there were like $500 trillion of uh, derivatives built on top of these, these types of rates in traditional right. uh, finance. Um, those derivatives, right? It's not like, um, like if you add up all of the accounts, there's like, there's not like $500 trillion in actual money that people are, are custodying, right? It's just like the contract value of these derivatives. Right. And I'm wondering if you could fast forward a little bit and uh, forecast how this could maximally work with uh, Ethereum. So could we come to a place where Ethereum is say worth like, you know, $5 trillion or something like that? That's the um, like the base money of Ether, maybe that's like uh, Ethereum's equivalent of, uh, you know, an M0 or something like that. And then we kind of go all the way up and then we have a multi-trillion uh, dollar, like tens of trillion dollar uh, markets of derivatives built on top of Ethereum in the way that it's it's built on top of, um, you know, TradFi reference rates. Could you see a world where, where that's the case and what would have to happen to get us there? A hundred percent. I mean, such a no-brainer. As markets mature, um, derivatives markets tend to be much significantly larger than than things like spot markets. So yeah, you know, it, look, it's it's early, right? But but you could definitely see if, if we do have uh, social consensus around benchmarks, and you're start and you're able to compose, and you know, if you see the adoption of Ethereum, like we think there's going to be, and you see continued explosion across layer twos and and applications, um, the need and desire to 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 hedge risk um, is going to be you know profound and so you know to the extent Ethereum keeps building like it's building um, I, I think yes you're going to see you know a, a possibility of trillions of dollars of derivatives so that people can avail themselves of of risk management like, like this stuff needs to be managed and and so yeah super excited about that that future state and um, hopefully we can help get there. You know, another form of uh, social consensus that I think is important in general in TradFi and crypto anywhere is sort of like a, you know, central meme uh, to kind of illustrate uh, illustrate the concept. And I think um, B- Bitcoin has really taken off in TradFi under this meme of like gold, right? It's like, it's yeah, like gold, totally. except it's digital gold. Uh, one meme that we've been kind of early on at, at Bankless, we've been talking about it for years because I think it really fits. Uh, and when I say meme, I, I don't mean that this just... It's just a, a narrative. It's just a way of describing what's actually going on, right? We're not building this out of a uh, whole cloth. We're sort of like synthesizing what the thing is, and we're uh, using an analogy. Um, is uh, ether as an internet bond, basically, right? Ether is kind of like a when you stake it, it becomes a treasury, right? When it's unstaked, it's kind of like a, a dollar, and then you build these uh, global reference rates on on top of it, and you can build massive derivatives uh, markets. And so I'm I'm I think that is a meme that is uh, catching on. And that will catch on. Again, crypto natives are always early to these things, but TradFi, I think, will catch on to this. And I'm wondering how uh, the Caesar rates like can help with that. Do you th- do you think it will help with that? Do you think it will sort of cement this in? Uh, you know, you've got Bitcoin, that's the gold, and you have Ether as the internet bond. And look, it has this uh, you know like daily reference rate, and we're building derivatives on top of it. And they go, oh, okay, I I see. It's it's kind of like the dollar. It's kind of like a bond. It's kind of like LIBOR or the the, the other rates that they've been familiar with. Do you think it helps in the, in that cause? Totally right. Like like again, the traditional mind. As you start looking at Ethereum, there's two things that like jump off the plate. First are smart contracts. You're like, wow, all this DeFi stuff. Wow, it, it does stuff better than I can do in traditional finance. But then the other, 
like really, really cool thing if you're if you have a traditional mind is this yield. And you're like, wow, this this is I, I get this. I understand yield. I understand the internet bond. And what we're proposing here with Caesar is okay, traditional mind, here is something else that you understand. It's that composable, observable benchmark that you can that you can build upon. Um, and you can build upon it to hedge your risk. You can build on it to speculate and to, and, and to take risk. And so it like feeds so naturally into like how this mark, how an internet bond meme will evolve. I mean, it's, it's just such a no brainer. So very excited about it. Um, I think you can see, um, just the amount of, of, of utility it would bring to the, to, to the ecosystem. Um, because again, it's about, about, about risk management and, uh, and there's just so much utility for all the players. And, and look, I get even more excited as we, the busier that Ethereum gets, the more activity, the more you need something like this. We we still haven't seen like a a, a scaled out version of an interest rate swap um, type of um, type of product in in DeFi or in crypto. And like, what do you think is necessary to get there? Why why haven't we seen that yet, Chris? Oh, it's because you don't have social consensus around around standardized benchmarks, right? It's really hard to you know, most DeFi exchanges, et cetera, like they, they benefit through volume and scale. And again, getting back to the containerized shipping reference, you can only build scale through standardization. And so hopefully, and again, like I hope that by offering some standardization, you know, those DeFi protocols will be able to, to put much more activity and volume through um, and also attract a new generation of users. And those users are not using it just to degen. They're using it maybe to hedge risk and to actually, you know, deliver real like utility. So yeah, I, I think that's the reason is we've lacked these standardized benchmarks um, across the board. I, uh, I, I, I'm wondering, Chris, it, it, as you think about a standardized benchmark, benchmark ha and Caesar, how does CoinFund uh, think about this as a product? Is, is it sort of like, um, uh, is there revenue uh, being being built off this, or is this like a public good? I, as I was looking at some of the how the other benchmarks were made, it's basically like banking consortiums and uh, financial consortiums that kind of come together. And I think one of the rates you mentioned, uh, the SOFA rate. Looks like that is uh, secured by J.P. Morgan, uh, I believe, right? So, it, it, you know, are these like public goods for anyone to use? Like, why is CoinFund uh, even doing this? Yeah, uh, I think I think it's a combination of, of a couple of things. So we have a commercial relationship with CoinDesk Indices. They, they go out and they license it. And so there are some economics uh, for sure at stake. Um, but I also do think that, you know, we haven't made any, you know, we haven't made any money yet. Um in time, you know, we do think that it's going to off also offer utility. So I don't think like making a, making some money and also um, providing utility are like mutually exclusive. Uh, so that's that's where we are today. Well, as we end this, then Chris, um, uh, this has been really really cool. Actually, it got it got nerdy, but I like and and geeky. But I think most folks will be able to to kind of keep keep up with the flow of the conversation. It's a really interesting product you guys are are building. Uh, just want to end with this. So like. Who are you looking to talk to about Caesar? Who who should get in touch with you? Uh, who should start thinking about um, integrating it? What are the next conversations you'd love to have? Yeah, we, we've spoken with an, a number of, of different industry participants, everyone from TradFi to exchanges to emerging DeFi protocols. Um, and so, yeah, anyone who's interested, you can reach out to me, uh, PerkinsCR97 on Twitter, uh, or I guess we call it X these days. Um, 
and and yeah, I, I just think there's so many there's there's a vast amount of applicability. Uh, so happy to partner with anyone to help them get this off the ground. All right, we are happy to promote the the narrative of Ether the Internet Bond at Bankless. Uh, of course, um, very very exciting times. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ryan. Really appreciated it. And again, thank you so much for educating so many people. Um, you provide an incredible public good, and I just want to say thanks again. Hey, we wouldn't be doing anything else. It's just uh, it's never boring here, and we are uh, speed running the history of finance. I think benchmarks and reference rates are the next area that that we have to cover here. So thank you for your work in putting this together. Bankless Nation, we'll have some action items for you. So Chris sent me a whole list of details about Caesar itself. We'll include those, including some articles on the concept that you can go research. Got to end with this, of course. Crypto is risky, so are reference rates. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. 